It's good to be with you guys again. Like Chad said, if you're new here, so glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is John, one of the pastors here, and if we haven't met, love to get to meet you, um, maybe after the service. A uh, couple little announcements here as we get going. First of all, do you remember what we were doing a week ago? Yes. We had pancakes, we had a beautiful brunch, which followed up the end of our missions campaign, and that was a lovely time, and I have good news. Through your giving, we exceeded our goal. Isn't that cool? Yeah. In fact, the number might be a little higher than that. That was as of Monday. And so I just want to thank you guys for contributing towards this. And this will go straight towards missions here in Fort Collins and Severance and to nations around the world. And so thanks for being part of that. I also wanted to thank my parents for coming this morning. It's good to be with you guys here. Yeah. Uh, And we are at the end of a book. We've been studying the book of James, and today is the last week. I was joking with the guys uh, up here beforehand. We went through the book of John. I think we spent like a year and a half in the book of John. This one went a little bit faster. And um, so hopefully you've enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully this will be our last, a good last touch to the book. Uh, We're starting a new series next week, give you a little preview. We are going to be studying the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, so the last four books of the Pentateuch. It's going to be excellent, and it's going to be a high-level overview and um, try to understand the narrative, but especially the law, and what does that look like for us today? So I think you're really going to enjoy that uh, as we kick it off next week. So like I said, we're at the end of the book of James, and if you've been around, you know that the book of James has been packed full of things to do. James gives us commands. He gives us exhortations. He's kind of like that friend you have when you start talking about your life, and they say, hey, you should do this. Hey, you should do this. But in a good way, James is filled with things that we should do. And as we move to the end, it is no exception in these final verses. Um, James uh, gives us, I think we're going to look at seven exhortations that James gives us. And many people have needlessly tried to to thread a needle between all these exhortations here at the end and find one common theme. There's not one common theme for all of these. It's almost like a compilation of different sermons. He just throws it together, gives us the cliff notes, and so we're just going to look at these as a... um, Just a variety of exhortations, not just uh, one theme. And um, I want to maybe give one thought before we get started, is that there might be a tendency as you listen today to disregard these exhortations from James, these commands, and be like, ah, I don't know if I really want to do it. For one, they're all, they're very simple and concise. He'll say one thing, it might just be one line. You might be like, ah, man. And, uh, but we don't obey the Bible because of complex thoughts or because of very ornate speech. It's God's word. So even if it's simple, we're going to obey it. Um, it might be natural to ignore it because our flesh, the part of us that doesn't follow Jesus, just wants to continue on and wants to theorize about it. But God doesn't want us to do it. His spirit is beckoning us to obey. There will be life in obeying And uh, maybe we might also have a tendency to think about other people. As I'm speaking the word, you might think, boy, so-and-so really needs to hear this. 
And, um, and I want to tell you that James is addressing you and he's addressing me. Even the specific verb choice he chooses individualizes the application so that all of us know he's talking to me. Um, so I want to give you that heads up. Now, here's what will happen. If we listen to it, if we obey, there are some power-packed promises, some exhortations in here that will surprise us. So here's where we're going. Uh, we're going to look at the close of the letter, and through these simple and concise exhortations, we're going to see that they pack an unexpectedly powerful punch if we will act upon them. So, are you guys ready to dig into the Word? The Bible? Yes, some of you are awake. How about, how about we pray, and then, um, and then you grab the Bible in front of you. Jesus, you are the Lord, and our greatest desire is to dwell with you forever. Nothing better, nothing greater than to enjoy you forever. This morning, we want to enjoy you. You're here. You are here in our midst, and we want to hear from you, King Jesus, and we don't want to be like the one who listens but does not obey like the house built on the sand. We want to be like the one who listens and obeys, has a house built on the rock. I'm trusting this morning, Jesus, that you will have our focus, that you would bring uh, hidden sins that are in the dark. You would bring those into the light. That you would bring a healing effect on our church family as we hear and obey your word this morning. Thank you so much for the blessing of coming together and getting to listen to your very words. We pray that you'd move in power this morning, and we pray this in, the King, in King Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So I'd love for you to grab that Bible in front of you, and I want you to go to page 1013, and we're going to look at these verses from James. Okay, how many of you guys are there? How many of you guys need more time? Okay, I think we're there. Beginning in verse 13. This is God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The 
This is God's word. And it ends kind of abruptly, doesn't it? We'll get to that towards the end. It's kind of an abrupt finish for a book. All right, so we're going to go back to the beginning, look at a few verses at the beginning where James gives us his first two exhortations for experiences we might go through. And like I said, it's really concise. It's really simple. There's only so much that I'm going to unpack from this because there's not too many words. And so his first instruction for us is for those of us who are suffering. You'll remember that the book of James began where he said, um, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so this is the same theme that he started at the beginning and he's bringing it to an end. Those trials, those tests can be varied of level. It might be the hardest thing you're going through in your whole life, and it might be a, a micro trial, a micro suffering. Whatever the case, the suffering is on account of living in this broken world. And James is just very straightforward here. For any of us here in the room that are experiencing some sort of suffering, he has some instruction for us, and here it is. Pray. Isn't it natural to neglect prayer as we experience suffering? Yes, that's my experience. Very oftentimes, I, I find it more challenging to pray, and yet it's the time, perhaps more than any, that I need to lean in, and I need to connect with God and get His perspective and His power and His help. And so, dear brother and sister, I have a question. Has your suffering snuffed out your prayer. We must press into prayer during our suffering. James gives us the next experience and exhortation. He said, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In this case, the word cheerful is less like happy-go-lucky. Wow, life is going really great for me, therefore I'm happy. This word cheerful has to do with encouragement and a, a positive, hopeful outlook amidst living in a broken world. And so really, these are kind of two, two sides of the same coin. We're always suffering in a way. Are we suffering in a hopeless way or are we suffering in a cheerful way? Are we encouraged? Do we have courage to face it? Uh, this word uh, sing, it says to sing praise. I'll give you the Greek word there. It's solo. Does that look like an English word that you recognize? Psalm. Yes, this is the same word we get our word psalm from. And so when he says to, uh, if you're cheerful, if you're encouraged to sing, it doesn't mean just to put on the radio. No, this is an actual singing a song of praise to God. And it's not just speaking. It's including melody. It's including music as part of your expression to God. I appreciated one commentator's thought. He, he said, well, maybe you struggle to pray during suffering, but maybe even the greater challenge is to sing praise when you're really encouraged, when things are going excellently and you're hopeful. Isn't it so easy to neglect that? Things go great. We get what we're asking for. We're feeling encouraged. We're ready to tackle life. And then we forget God. It's almost like we just only leaned in them when things are hard. This idea reminds me of the account of Jesus and the time he healed those 10 lepers. Do you remember that story? 
This is what it, uh, I'll remind you of it here from Luke 17. As Jesus entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he uh, saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went and were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Dear brothers and sisters, will we be like the one healed leopard who returns to God and gives him praise? Or will we be like the nine lepers who, once they were blessed, acclimated to a life of entitlement? Let's be like the one who returned and gave praise to God. On Tuesday this week, I was feeling cheerful. I was feeling encouraged. I felt hopeful. I felt vigor and excitement to tackle life. And uh, naturally, without this passage, I would have probably just taken it for granted. But I was thinking about this passage. I was getting ready for today. And I realized that theorizing about what this meant wasn't going to help me anymore. What does it mean to sing praise? And so I stopped what I was doing. I put my stuff down. I put a song on and I began to sing praise to God. And... Simply by walking in that obedience, my experience was that I already felt encouraged. The truths of God resonated in my heart. I I felt more encouraged, such that at the end, I just began praying a prayer of gratitude. And without even planning it, I just started thinking of all the things that God had been doing, things I was grateful for, things He was answering, things that I had been blessed with. And I left more encouraged Uh, and more aware of God's blessings in my life. And so even though these two exhortations are extremely simple and they're concise, they pack an unexpectedly powerful punch if we're willing to act upon them. Let's look at his next one, shall we? This one's a little bit more in-depth, and so we'll spend more time on this. Uh, He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, so, do we practice this as a church? What do you guys think? (laughs) Maybe too tricky of a question to get from the stage. Yes, we do practice this. And I'm going to explain why, uh, how at the end, but let me unpack um, the scripture here on our way to getting there. Um, let's start with, um, with the sick. This is a, a word that conveys someone who is feeling off physically, spiritually, or mentally. There's a weakness in any of those categories, perhaps a combination thereof. And the severity of the sickness is, is likely to be pretty significant for something to be able to call upon 
the elders of the church. It's most likely a sickness that's acute or a sickness that is chronic. Uh, it's not time to summon the elders when you're suffering from some allergies, um, you know. So it's a different category, right? Uh, and as I already previewed, there's a, there's a, a call, um, a need to summon the elders of the church. Uh, in this case, I want you to notice that it's not the elders who are to seek after all of the, those who are sick necessarily, but there's an important uh, element of someone who's sick calling on the elders. There is a, an expression of faith here uh, for the one who's making the call. And then this word to pray over, um, the verb tense um, conveys to either to stand over or to lay hands upon. It means to pray above. And how about this anointing? Might not be familiar with this. The word anoint means to smear something or someone with oil to set them apart for God. And if you've read the Old Testament, you're familiar that there's a really rich storyline with this theme of anointing in the Old Testament. When it comes to the New Testament, apart from Jesus' title, the anointed, there's not that many references to this practice. Uh, besides this one here, we've got Mark chapter 6. Jesus sends out his 12 apostles on a mission trip, and he gives them, um, well, I'll just read it to you, Mark six thirteen. Uh, where it says that the disciples, the apostles, cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and he healed them, and they, and healed them. So you've got Mark 6, and you've got James 5 as the two instances in the New Testament that describe anointing uh, for healing. So, interesting, not too many verses to work off of here. But I want you to notice that the... Uh, the main thing, the primary thing here is prayer. The secondary thing is the anointing. Prayer is the command, as it were, and anointing is something that happens with the prayer. It doesn't happen apart from it. What, so what that means is the oil that is used here is not special, it's not magical, it's not, um, it doesn't have any inherent healing power. Uh, the oil anointing is a symbol of being set apart. And the prayer is essential, and the prayer is emphasized. And so even saying that, even though the prayer is essential, the prayer points to something else. The prayer points to the power, not of the elders, but even to the power of the Lord Jesus, the one who is, who is the one who actually brings the healing. So you see in the next verses, as it says, that the prayer of faith will save, and the Lord will raise him up. And so the healing occurs by none other than the Lord Jesus. Um, this word to raise up is not referring to resurrection. It's the word for when someone is pulled out of a sickbed. They're brought vertically up. And so they will be saved by the healing power of the Lord Jesus. But he does it through the agency of someone who comes to bring their sickness, to maybe even confess their sin, and through the, um, the laying on of hands by the elders. And I want to camp on this phrase for a little bit longer because I think this is very important. Notice this line, the very last line. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You might have noticed that Jesus said a similar phrase sometimes when he healed people. They experienced the healing. And then he said, um, your sins are forgiven. Which begs the question, 
What is the correlation between sin and sickness? Have you ever wondered if your poor health is related to sin in your life? Have you ever wrestled with that question? Is God punishing me right now for a particular sin? So I'm hoping to navigate a fairly complex topic fairly quickly here. So the default setting, maybe the default belief for many in the Bible was that sickness was almost always directly correlated with sin. Think of Job's friends. You guys remember Job, the the seemingly innocent sufferer of the Old Testament. He experienced all sorts of trials, and his friends essentially said, hey, the reason you're going through these trials, including your sickness, is because there is sin in your life. And um, similarly, that's the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. Jesus' disciples say a similar thing. This is John chapter 9. They see a man who is blind, and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. These two capture a whole swath of many's expectations in the Bible, that I'm sick because I had a specific sin. And we see that these get turned on their head. The story of Job is certainly not that Job had, uh, was primarily being punished for his sin, but God had a greater purpose And even in John chapter 9, Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus turns turns this thought on his head. So maybe we've got it now, right? So that means sickness is always unrelated to specific sin, right? No. All right, so then we get some more. Jesus, uh, this is the story of the man who is paralyzed. Some friends brought him up to Jesus that he might heal them. They cut the hole in the roof. They bring him down. And, um, and he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home implying that there was a connection between, perhaps, between sin and this man's um, paralysis. Or even maybe one that's a little bit more explicit and maybe less familiar. From 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is describing to the church that there were some people who were uh, approaching communion in a way that was inappropriate, in a way that was not rightly uh, recognizing the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And so he said, on account of the way they were doing that, some of them were weak and ill, and some had even died. So in this case, a very direct correlation between a specific sin and one's health. So with these, along with our James passage, here's maybe our better idea. Sickness is sometimes related to specific sin. That word if is a very important word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. If the one who is sick has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Without it, without that word if, we might wrongly assume that all of our sickness is due to a specific sin in our life. And that could throw us off. But we could also err the other direction, which I think we might be prone to do, which is to think our sickness is never related to our sin totally unrelated. 
I would be surprised if the next time you go to the doctor and you're having some kind of ailment, the doctor says, do you think there might be any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there a habitual sin that's maybe leading, affecting you physically here? You don't get support from the culture that's going to tell you that. So maybe we're more prone to disregard this. And so my encouragement is next time you're experiencing an acute sickness or something that's chronic, uh, seek the Lord for wisdom. Lord, what's going on here? What are you doing in my life? Are you doing this that your works might be displayed in my life? Are you doing this to show me that your grace is sufficient in my weakness? Is this a spiritual attack? Lord, is this due to an area of habitual, unconfessed sin in my life? It could be one of those, it could be more. But it's worth asking him and instead of just making an assumption. Now, how do we practice this as a church? And I'll show the scripture. In one sense, we kind of just go straight from this passage into what we do. So generally, uh, the elders will respond to a request from someone who's experiencing chronic or acute illness. And um, generally, we'll gather, we'll, we'll, give a, we'll give maybe a little bit of homework to say, hey, I want you to take time to consider if there's an area of unconfessed sin. And um, just to pray over that, we'll gather together. It might be here at the church building or, or perhaps in a home where someone might need to be. And we'll start the time by reading this passage uh, and pulling it out, trying to understand it. And then we'll give an opportunity maybe before or after prayer to ask the question, is there any sin that, that you feel like the Lord wants you to confess? And... Um, and then while we're praying for the person, we'll lay hands on them, and we'll anoint them with head, usually on their forehead. And in my experience, it's a very, um, it's a very humbling moment. It's a very holy moment. As together as elders of the church, we are all praying together in faith um, for healing. And to be honest about the results, James is very straightforward. He just says, hey, you do this. And this will save the one. Save also means heal. We'll save, we'll heal. The Lord will raise him up. And most of the time, what I've experienced is that people will experience a gradual healing. Um, more often than not, in fact, many people will say afterwards, like, you know, there's something about that moment where that was kind of the turning point where I felt like I began to improve gradually. Um, can, can the Lord heal instantaneously? Absolutely. Will he do that sometime? He might. Uh, but it's up to him, his, his time scale that he wants to do. But this passage reminds us that it's not the elders who heal. They don't have special power inherently. It's the Lord Jesus who heals. And he does it when he wants, how, uh, how quickly he wants, in the way that he wants. So, even though this is a simple uh, command, call for the elders... Uh, it does pack an unexpectedly powerful punch if we're willing to act upon it. Let's go to these next verses which build on this idea but take it in a slightly different direction. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This might be kind of a confusing transition. How do we go from elder prayer to confession to the story of Elijah? What's going on here? So I'm going to show it visually. I'm hoping to make this uh, really clear. And I also want you to note things that are new in this section. I want you to notice that it's rooted in the gospel. And I want you to notice that it's directed towards ordinary followers of Jesus. It's rooted in the gospel. It's directed towards ordinary followers of Jesus. Here's what I mean by rooted in the gospel. The scripture up top is the one we just read. The scripture at the bottom is the new section. So, what should be our motivation for confessing? This confessing is a present tense confession. It's not the past confession like I confess Jesus is Lord, I got saved. But this is a present ongoing confession. Why should we do that? Well, it's for this motivation. It's because... God answers prayer because God forgives sin. This is essentially the gospel, if you will, the gospel of Jesus, that because Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins, we can be forgiven and we can turn from enemies of God into friends of God such that we know he hears us. He wants to answer our prayer. And so this confession is gospel-rooted. It's, it's rooted in the fact that we know he'll forgive us. He's already done it. Here's the anti-gospel. I want to confess my sins so that God will forgive me, so that I can become a friend of God again. Keep doing that over and over. That's the anti-gospel. Or maybe stated differently, if we don't believe God forgives us, if we don't believe we're friends that are welcome near, we won't feel safe confessing our sin to him or to other people because we're insecure. We don't know where we're at. It's only because of the gospel that we can freely admit that we've screwed up and that we need the forgiveness of God. And so the gospel message does indeed call us, it exhorts us to confess our sins, not just once, but ongoingly. And this word, maybe it sounds like a bad word, like confession. You just think, oh, your heart sinks a little bit. This is a really good word. A bad word would be like getting caught, getting found out, getting caught red-handed. That, those are bad. Confession's a great word. And I'll tell you why. It's because it's, uh, well, it's built on the wisdom of the Proverbs. I think James might have been thinking of this, perhaps. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them obtains mercy. Confession's a great word because in it we find the mercy of God. Or as James puts it, James builds upon this language. Instead of mercy, he adds the word healing. Did you notice that? He added the word healing. Um, and so there is, a, there is a real connection between confessing our sins and experiencing healing that's holistic but can include physical as well. But I want you to notice also that it's not just rooted in the gospel but it's directed towards ordinary Jesus followers. How would you fill in this blank if you're not looking at the answer in front of you? After he said, hey, call for the elders, have them pray for you, therefore confess your sins to... He said, yeah, you guys know it. I would have naturally thought, therefore confess your sins to the elders. Because that was the context. He was just talking about 
getting, getting prayer for elders, therefore you should confess your sins to the elders. But no, he doesn't do that. He intentionally changes it from a specific situation now to a general situation where he calls everyone to confess sins to one another, not just to elders, and that everyone gets to be involved in praying for others that they may be healed. I find this interesting. It's not just the sick that are called to confess. It's all of us. And we confess our sins not just to elders, but to one another, and everyone gets to pray. And so based on this, I feel like maybe the last section was an acute sickness, pray for that. This is more like general preventative health. Uh, An ongoing confession with one another does the body good. It's preventative medicine. Does it surprise you that God wants to use you in such a powerful way? That he would use you as an ordinary follower of Jesus to be involved in something that could bring healing to somebody else's body and soul? I think this is what James is saying in this passage. And I think we can be confident of it even as we look at the next verses with the point that he makes next. He says that a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now we're going to follow the arrow up, okay? We're going to go from the middle, go up. You guys with me here? Okay, we're going to go up here. Who is the righteous person? Is it the super spiritual elder? I think he's talking about an ordinary follower of Jesus. I think he's talking about one of the one another's. Anyone that is a follower of Jesus gets to be one of these righteous people. Obviously, they have to live a genuine life, but I think he's calling on all of us who are made righteous in Christ. And then let's follow the arrow down. Righteous people have a powerful effect. If you were to think in the Old Testament of the most, maybe the most ordinary person you could think of, maybe would you think of Elijah? Most ordinary, had the most normal life, no special powers. Well, James thought of Elijah to be the perfect example of a guy who is totally ordinary like you and me, as he references a story from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. You probably know this story. I'll review it for you. Elijah had a miraculous ministry. He was a prophet of God in Israel. And he had called out the sin of the people who were following a false god, an idol named Baal. And so he said, all right, for three and a half years, that's what it ended up being actually, there's not going to be rain. He prayed. There was no rain. He went into hiding. He came back after three and a half years, approached the king. All right, we're going to have a showdown. We're going to have a showdown between my God, Yahweh, and your God, Baal. Let's go up on the mountain and let's see which God can bring fire on our sacrifice. So go on the mountain. All the prophets of Baal throw their sacrifice. They start calling on Baal and nothing happens. And Elijah has some fun little uh, banter with them and talking about what their God is doing and we could go into that another time. And then, uh, and then he has some people help douse his sacrifice. It's just like drenched swimming pool amounts of water. And then Elijah, who's an ordinary guy just like you and me, right? He humbly prays this. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Fire comes down from heaven. It licks up all the water off the sacrifice. And right after that, Elijah prays again, this time on his knees. He gets down on his knees and he prays for rain. And it starts as a cloud the size of a man's fist and it grows into a mighty tempest that fills the land with water and the sick and dried out land is healed. It experiences life from the water and it grows fruit again as it hadn't for years. Ordinary guy, right? That's... Actually, James' point, for real. He said that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was not an angelic being. He was not spiritual human 2.0. He was a human like you and me. A human who prayed to an extraordinary God who had extraordinary power. And so it is with you and me. We're ordinary humans But when we pray, we call on a God who's powerful, who can move mountains, who can do anything, who can heal the land, who can heal people as he chooses. And so that means God can use you when someone confesses their sin and you pray for them, God can bring healing to them. Do you believe that? Though it's simple and concise, this exhortation packs a powerful punch if we're willing to act upon it. Now, let's go back to the exhortation to confess here real quick. He said to confess your sins. This is not to elders, but to one another and pray for one another. And so while we're here in this moment, I want to ask you, dear brothers and sisters, do you have an area of unconfessed sin in your life right now? Do you have a a secret struggle that's hidden in the dark that, that nobody else knows about? Are you wondering if your sin struggle is affecting you physically? If yes, James says, confess your sins to one another and have them pray for you. Come experience healing. To whom should you confess your sins? Well, this case, to another follower of Jesus. And from personal observation, these are my comments, I would advise that it's someone who's local Somebody who can see your life, you can rub shoulders with them. And I would encourage that if you're married, you have somebody to confess your sins to in addition to your spouse. Here's one way I've done it in my life. This is my small group. We met together in Old Town this week. And regularly we'll ask this question to kind of kick off our times together. How have you blown it this week? How have you blown it this week? It's so easy maybe to, to or at least for me, maybe to talk about, man, God's answering this prayer and I'm encouraged about this, but it's not natural for me to start this way and so I force myself to do it. How have I blown it this week? And then I have to sit across the table from another man, look eye to eye with him and try to think of the thing that I don't want to share and I share it. And I don't want to share it in generals, I want to be specific because I want to experience healing. Look him in the eyes. I confess my sin. I have them pray for me, and I do likewise. They confess sin to me. I pray for them. 
And in so doing, we experience a good preventative medicine because the toxin of sin's effect is pulled out of our bodies and we experience life. Let me wrap up with these last verses very briefly here. Uh, Not too many comments on this, but just uh, on our way towards a a, a moment here together. This is an encouragement for our ministry to wanderers. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This type of wandering is someone who has been deceived from the path of truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and is walking in a deceptive path, a path leading to death, a path that's not about trusting God, not about Jesus being the only way for life and for eternity, but some other way. And so I want to ask you just to make this real. How many of you are currently feeling burdened by someone you know personally who has wandered from the faith? I'm assuming there are some yeses, no hands, but yes, yes. Aiming to bring back a wanderer is daunting. Isn't it daunting? There are certainly many practicals James could have given us in our ministry to wanderers. Maybe even he could have mentioned prayer. He's been talking about prayer. Very fitting. But interestingly, instead of giving us tips, James aims for our motivation. And he wants to give you and me encouragement in our ministry to fellow wanderers that are around us. And he says, he says this, that if we bring someone back from their wandering, two things, save their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This effective ministry is incalculable. We couldn't think of something bigger. The person who is wandering will instead of experiencing death, which is denoting final judgment. Instead of experiencing hell, they will experience eternal life. Uh, They will be experiencing a covering of a multitude of sins. They will be generously forgiven by the blood of Jesus, just covered. All the sins they're walking in right now in their wandering will be covered over and forgotten and put on Jesus as they experience that. I want you to think about that person you know who has wandered, who is wandering right now. And I want to speak to your heart. Brother and sister, do not give up hope. Do not give up hope for the wanderer. The ministry that you could be involved in has consequences that are unimaginable, that are so big. And so James wants to encourage us. You've got eternity on the line. You've got all their forgiveness. It's a worth-it ministry. Whatever God calls you to do, to pray, to be involved, to stay in their life, to speak truth to them, stick at it. It's worth it. It's a simple and concise exhortation, but it packs a powerful punch. So with that, I want to move us towards a moment. Ben, I want to invite you guys up. And... Because James is all about the exhortations, I want to give us a moment to respond to this here. And uh, I put a summary slide. These are all his exhortations. You may or may not be able to read it. I got them all up there. He encourages us with these things. Sufferer, pray. Cheerful one, sing praise. 
sick, call for the elders. Elders, pray for the sick. Everyone, confess your sins to one another. Everyone, pray for fellow sin confessors. And wanderer retriever, know that your ministry has an incomparable impact. And so I want to give a moment for you to respond and not for this just to be information, but um, I want you to be able to share with the person next to you which one of these did the Holy Spirit use to um, connect with your life. Maybe as I was speaking, you're connecting it with something else. He was helping you. And so I'm just going to give you a few moments here, maybe a couple minutes actually, to share that and to even pray briefly. Um, with the person next to you. So let's not do groups of five or anything. There won't be enough time. Maybe it'd be best if your group is just about two people. Share what stood out to you and then pray for each other. And then we're going to move into a song which will be an expression of that. And I'll wrap us up. Lord Jesus, we do just give you our hearts. We want to follow you and obey what you've shown us today. Help us to walk in life. I pray for healing. I pray for openness here on account of what you do this morning. Thank you so much for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.